my name is Chad. I serve with the SEND Network in Columbus, a church planning network that's partnered with your church uh, many years ago when you were getting started and um, work with church planters, helping new churches plant churches, and uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here with you guys. Thanks to Pastor David and, and your team for, uh, for the invitation. Um, really thankful. I want to introduce my, my family to you. I have a picture of them up here uh, on the screen for you to see. My, my wife, Jessica, I've been married to her almost 13 years. You can awe if you want. Oh, right? Like that's... Uh, maybe it wasn't cute. I don't know. I thought it was a good picture, but that's my wife, Jessica, 13 years. Uh, Ezra is nine. Hayes just turned six. And then Olivia is three. You can tell by the way she's looking in this picture. She's a little spicy, right? Uh, if they told you everything that you were going to experience in parenting, we'd never have children. Am I right? Uh, zero stars do not recommend having kids. So if you're, uh, no, they're great, right? We lo- love kids. Uh, the other day, my son, my nine-year-old told me, he said, Dad, you're, you're stealing my joy. You're stealing my joy. And I think that's what parenting is, isn't it? Um, but this is my family. Really thankful to be with you guys today. Looking at this series that you've been in for the past few weeks called Messiah as, as you walk through really the last uh, days uh, um, and moments of Jesus's life on the planet according to the gospel of John. So we're going to be in, in John chapter 20 and we're going to read verses 24 through 29 and then, and then take a look at it together. Here's what it says. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and the place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, so three truths I want us to see from this passage this morning about, about doubt and faith as it pertains to Thomas's story specifically. The first idea is this one. The presence of doubt does not mean the absence of faith. The presence of doubt in our lives does not mean that there's a wholesale absence of faith. Uh, Thomas here is uh, known as Doubting Thomas. How would you like for your greatest mistake to also be your nickname, right? Isn't that great? Doubting Thomas. I mean, imagine if, if people labeled us that way. Imagine if we said, here comes Lying Larry or Gossiping Gary or the one everybody's trying to avoid, Murdering Mary. What if Murdering Mary was coming? Like, what if... What if your worst mistake was also your, your nickname? See, I, I think we've been very hard on Thomas. Like, it's not just doubted Thomas, it's doubting Thomas. Like, don't you, don't you think he showed up at gatherings in the early church and was like, guys, that was one time. That was one time. Uh, and, and yet he's known as doubting Thomas. And through history, I mean, look at it. 
2,000 years later, we're still talking about him, not as Thomas, but as doubting Thomas. I think, um, I think we've been very hard, very hard on him. Uh, I think we've been harder on, on Thomas than we have on Peter, and Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus uh, restored Peter, and uh, I think he, he did the same with Thomas as well here in our, in our passage but it's not just Thomas. I feel like the, the church has been hard on doubters um, all throughout church history. Uh, I remember growing up. I grew up in church. Uh, anybody else grow up in church out there? Yeah, we're a rare breed, uh, those of us who grew up in church. We didn't, we didn't come to Jesus and stop sinning. Like, we learned to sin in church, right, which is a special breed of person uh, growing up in church. I grew up in every spring and fall, we used to have what were called revivals. And revivals were multi-day meetings where you had church every day of the week, like Monday through Wednesday or Sunday through Wednesday. So it was, it was the most church that I ever experienced in my entire life. And Monday night was always youth night or kids night. And Tuesday night, they, they served pizza. And this is what, this is what my childhood was. And I remember growing up in these revival services. And I remember uh, particularly the, the, came to the response time at these, at these services. And the evangelists would say something like this. If you're 99% sure you're a Christian, you're 100% lost. If you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. I mean, I was never more than 64% sure what I was going to have for lunch, right? Much less what I believed in Jesus, you know? And so I made three professions of faith before 14 years old, right? Because it depended on the spring and fall. I mean, I endured all those times. You're, if you're 99, I was never more than 65% sure I was, a, I was a Christian. So I was always getting uh, saved. I was always responding to these things by, by, by getting saved again. And, and I think, I think we're, we're very hard on doubters in the church. But, but let's think about it for one second. Let's think about it for one second. If you think about it. I think doubt is actually a part of faith. I think, I think doubt's a part of faith. Before you call me a heretic, let me, let me read a passage to you from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things, listen, hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. So listen, listen to the language here. It's the assurance of things hoped for, it is the conviction of things not seen. So faith isn't 100% certainty. It's not sight, right? Faith is not sight. If it were sight, it wouldn't be faith. So there is, there's mystery. There's, there's some uh, space in there. Doubt is a part of authentic faith. I mean, the moment that our faith becomes sight, it ceases to be faith. The moment that our faith becomes 100% certainty, it ceases to be faith. <laughs> Uh, because with faith, there's this tension of not really knowing, not fully knowing. We can't really prove it. Uh, so, so it's not 100% certainty. So I, I think doubt, mystery, tension is kind of a part of authentic faith. As I said earlier, the presence of doubt does not mean the absence of faith. Again, I think, I think we've been pretty hard on Thomas. If you look at, look at what he's asking in these verses, he's not asking for anything other than what the other disciples have already seen. Like he doesn't want more than they got. He just wants what they have. <laughs> and honestly, I'm not sure his doubts are with Jesus, the person of Jesus. I think he's doubting maybe what the disciples are saying, but I don't think he has doubts about Jesus. 
Also, if you consider Thomas, again, we, we, we kind of frame him around this one experience here in, in John chapter 20. But there's another passage that he's mentioned in, in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus goes back to um, the Judea area to, to be with Lazarus, who's, Lazarus' family, who's, who's just died. Lazarus died. He goes back to be with Mary, Mary and Martha. He was very close with this family. And the disciples are kind of trying to persuade Jesus not to go back to Judea. They say, don't go back there. They just, they just tried to kill you there. <laughs> they may try to kill you again if you, if you go back. And Jesus says, no, we're going, we're going back. And of the 12 disciples, there is one disciple who speaks up in this moment. Do you know who that is? It's Thomas, right? Why, why isn't he known for what he says in this passage? Look at what, I'll read it to you. What he says in John chapter 11. He says, let us also go with him that we may die also. How about that for faith, right? <laughs> Thomas says, let us also go that, go that we may die with him. The only one who speaks up, the only one who has the courage enough to say, I'll, I'll go with Jesus. I'll, I'll go, Jesus, I will follow you to your death if that's what this means. So here, here's my point in all this. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean you don't have faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us have 100% certainty about everything when it comes to matters of faith. And if you're like that, then I say join the club, right? We're all wrestling with something. We're all processing something. We're all, we all have things that we're unsure of. And you can belong even if you don't believe 100%. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus, we see over and over in the Gospels and over and over with us that Jesus extends belonging before he expects belief and behavior. Over and over again. Jesus extends belonging to people before he expects belief and behavior. One of my favorite stories about this is with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? We think Thomas had it bad. Zacchaeus was known as a wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. So Zacchaeus decides to climb up into a tree and, and to see Jesus. And I thought he was climbing up the tree primarily because he was little. But I heard a pastor say recently why he thought. Zacchaeus was climbing into that tree. He, he wanted to see, of course. He wanted to see Jesus. But this pastor pointed out that Zacchaeus was despised and rejected for being a tax collector. He, he was a Jewish person taking the money from his Jewish people and giving it to the occupying enemy. <laughs> he was not popular. He was despised and rejected. So he got up in the tree to kind of be away from people, to, to get away from people because he was despised and rejected. And Jesus invites him down, despised and rejected as he was, and invites him into relationship with himself. He extends this belonging to Zacchaeus before, before Zacchaeus even believed or even behaved. At the end of the story, Zacchaeus, we know, gives, gives money back to, to what he's stolen and gives some of his money to the poor. He promises to make things right. But Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, come down, and if you will give these donations to the poor, I'll come to your house today. He doesn't do that. He extends belonging, I'm coming to your house today, before Zacchaeus' behavior ever changed, or his belief ever changed. I love what the pastor said. He says that Zacchaeus climbed up in that tree, despised and rejected, and Jesus could invite him down and offer belonging to him because Jesus himself was going to get up on a tree, despised and rejected in his place. It's beautiful, right? So Jesus is extending belonging to us, even before we believe or behave. Um, so we, we all wrestle with these things. 
But the presence of doubt doesn't mean that we have the absence of faith. Thomas is known for his doubts, but there's hope for us. Why? Because we're far less famous, right? We're not in the Bible, okay? But it's more than just that. Uh, we, we know that our doubts don't have to be our story because of what Jesus has done for us. The main theme of our lives can be not that we're known for doubting and struggling, but it can be based upon Jesus and who he is. Your doubts don't have to define you. Your struggles don't have to define you. Why? Because our God is bigger than our biggest doubts. He's bigger than our biggest doubts. Because of Jesus, we can be known for his work and not ours. So, the presence of doubt does not mean the absence of faith. But there's another truth here that I think this passage shows us about that we can see in Thomas's story. Not just the presence of doubt doesn't mean the absence of faith, but the presence of faith doesn't mean the absence of doubt. The presence of faith doesn't mean the absence of doubt. Just because you have an authentic faith doesn't mean you won't struggle with doubt. Just because you have seasons of doubt doesn't mean you have to leave the faith or the church. The key is not to avoid doubting or avoid struggles. That's impossible, right? We all struggle. We all have doubts. We all wrestle with things at times. The, the key is to struggle well, to process through your doubts well. I think Thomas does a really good job of this. So I want to I give us kind of four ways that we can wrestle with doubt very well. You can steward your doubts well. First of all, we need to realize that everybody wrestles with doubt. <laughs> everybody has this struggle at some point or another. Maybe, maybe some of us more than others, but all of us are going to wrestle with doubts at some point in our life. None of us are exempt from it. Thomas wasn't the only one who struggled to believe. Uh, we, we see all throughout the Gospels, the, the, the disciples, most of them having a crisis of faith with Jesus at some point or another. We don't know all of their stories like we know some of their stories. But most all of them were wrestling with doubts in some point, at some point and in some way. I love what uh, the songwriter Andy Gullihorn says when describing his faith. He says, it feels like I'm more a skeptic than I am a witness. I feel that at times. So realize that everyone has doubts. I think at the church, as the church, we need to be a safe place for people to struggle. We need to be a safe place for people to have doubts. All of us struggle with it at some points. Realize that. The second, second way that we doubt well, struggle well with our doubts, is, is that we should doubt our doubts. <laughs> you should doubt your doubts. I think sometimes we baptize our doubts as like ultimate truth. If you've ever been through a season of doubt, we kind of go, oh, I have this doubt about this. It's got to be true. I think we should doubt our doubts. Say, hey, where's that coming from? What belief is is underneath that particular wrestle I'm having with faith? We should probe our our doubts, ask questions of them. Um, Don't just assume that because we don't know what the answer is doesn't mean there isn't an answer, right? So we realize that we all struggle with doubts, doubt our doubts, and then here's the third piece of advice for us. We should struggle in community. You should doubt in community. I love that Thomas does this. I think Thomas's story, is we see this most clearly in his story. He didn't struggle alone. Like just because he said, I don't, I don't believe because I haven't seen Jesus, he didn't stop coming to the gatherings. In fact, where Jesus reveals himself to him is at one of the gatherings of the church when they're all back together. So he doesn't pull away. I think a lot, for a lot of us, our first tendency when we're wrestling with anything when it comes to struggle and doubt is we pull away from the community. 
I don't know if it's shame or, or fear or what specifically it is, but there's this tendency to go, you know what, I can't stay here if I'm going to have this struggle. I can't stay here if I'm going to have these, these doubts. And I, I think we should do the opposite. I think we should do what Tom, Thomas is doing here. We should press in. Like that's the time when you need community the most is when things, when things don't quite line up. I don't, maybe it's pride. We're too proud to let people know that we don't, we don't have it all together. But I think, I think it's in seasons of doubt and struggle that we need community more than anything. So we, we, should, we should press in. I think we should, uh, we should press into community. Odds are that if you were to do that, you would find that there are other people struggling with the exact same thing that you're struggling with. <laughs> All right, so realize that everyone has doubts. Doubt your doubts. Struggle in community, and then lastly, avoid extremes when it comes to doubt. We should avoid, avoid extremes. I think anytime we're wrestling with doubt, there's kind of two extremes. The first one is blind faith. Now, just believe. Just believe, right? Don't, don't look at, don't look at the, you're too much looking at the evidence. You're too much looking at things. Just believe. I think that's an extreme we should avoid. Uh, Jesus doesn't. Uh, at the end, tell Thomas, hey, just, just believe. No, he says, okay, come, come touch my hands. Come touch my side. Look at the evidence. Look at the proof. I, I think Jesus is inviting us to look at the proof. Of course, he says, blessed is the one who has not seen and yet believed. I think there's a blessing in believing without having to have some evidence of that. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're told not to think or not to examine or not to look at the evidence or not to consider um, the proofs. I think we should. So we should avoid blind faith. There's another extreme, I think, some advice to give us uh, when we're struggling, and that is to avoid endless doubts, to, 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 to stay in this place of debilitating doubt. I think it's easy to stay there where nothing can be true, nothing can be known, nothing can be nailed down. That's a really difficult place to stay. It's a really difficult place to live, and that, that will cause despair like, uh, like very few other things will. Um, so, so we don't need to stay in this endless doubt, but we don't also just need to stay, you know, just blind faith. That's what you need. Just have faith. No, there's somewhere in the middle where we wrestle, where we struggle, where we steward our doubts well. And so I think we see this in, in Thomas. Realize that everyone has doubts. Doubt your doubts. Struggle in community and avoid extremes. Why? Because the presence of doubt doesn't mean the absence of faith. I referenced uh, Hebrews 11 earlier in that verse about faith being the substance of things hoped for and um, the, the evidence of things not seen. If you look at it, I think that, that Hebrews 11 gives us a really great example of many people who, who lived lives of faith. But they didn't live perfect lives of faith. You know, I, I typically that, that passage is called like the Hall of Faith or the Christian Hall of Fame, but I would submit to you it should be called the Hot Mess Express. That's what I think it should be called. Like this, have you read the stories of these people? You read about all their faith in Hebrews 11, but then you go back to the Old Testament and you read about their lives and you see all the messiness with which they live. They weren't heroes. These people aren't heroes. They're people. <laughs> They're just people living like you and I are, trying to figure out their lives and this life of faith and what it means to do life with God just like, just like we are. 
I'll give you a few examples. Consider Abraham. God wasn't working on Abraham's timetable. Abraham was old. Sarah was old. God promised them a child. They thought God wasn't going to deliver. So, or, or were concerned that God wouldn't deliver. So what did they do? Sarah gives Abraham her servant Hagar and says, have an heir through Hagar. And they do. Ishmael is, is born, right? So even Abraham, who's kind of the father of the faith, who was the first person to take steps of faith, to leave a land that he knew, to go somewhere that God told him, not didn't give him a map, just told him, go this way, gave him a direction. Abraham doubted, wrestled with doubts about God's promises. How about Gideon? Gideon's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Do you know Gideon led the, the people of God and the armies of God, 300 men against thousands of men in, into victory. But do you know where Gideon was before the battle? Do you know where he was when God showed up to him? He was hiding in a wine vat. And, and God shows up to him, the angel shows up and says, uh, greetings, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, me? <laughs> like, I'm literally hiding here. Greetings, mighty warrior. He, he had a lot of doubts uh, about how God would use him. He couldn't, he couldn't believe that God would use him. He said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm the least in my family, in the least of the tribes of the tribes of Israel. Like, you, you got it all wrong. You don't want me to do this. God was like, no, you're, you're exactly the person I have in mind to do this. What about Moses? Moses is mentioned in Hebrews 11. Mighty Moses, Moses, the leader of God's people. But before he split the Red Sea, he was trying to talk God out of his commissioning, wasn't he? Oh, God, I'm not articulate. I can't speak. You don't want me. What, who would I even tell them sent me? You think they're going to listen to me? I grew up an Egyptian, God. I, they're not going to listen to me. He tried to talk God out of it. So our great heroes of the faith proved to be not really heroes at all. They're just people. There's people like you and like me wrestling and struggling with our doubt, with their doubts about God. And we're like them, right? We, we like them, like Thomas. We kind of live in this tension. We live in this space between the promises of God and the fulfillment of the promises of God. We live in this already and not yet. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet here. It's here, but it's not like here, like, like it's going to be here. And we live in this tension. We live in the in-between. And in that space, it's imperfect and it's hard and there's struggle and there's wrestling. That's okay. That's what it means to be human. It doesn't mean that we don't have authentic faith. Yeah, the presence of faith doesn't mean the absence of doubt. Just because we have an authentic faith doesn't mean there won't be seasons of doubt. The presence of doubt doesn't mean the absence of faith. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean you don't believe but there's another truth. One last truth I want us to see from this passage. It's, uh, it's this. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that really matters. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that really matters. The truth is, our, our faith will kind of come and go at times, I think. We will struggle. But at the end of the day, right, it's the object of our faith that matters. I love um, what Jesus tells the disciples over and over in the Gospels. They, they are 
struggling to believe what Jesus is telling them. And he, he says, oh, you of little faith. Remember that? Oh, you of little faith. And in that sense, Jesus is saying little faith is basically no faith. It's useless faith, right? You have little faith. It doesn't, it doesn't add up to anything. And then yet at other times, Jesus says, if you just have little faith. <laughs> so he's saying in one sense, oh, you have little faith. This little faith, it's worthless. But if you just have a little bit of faith, you can tell that mountain to go put itself in the ocean. It's funny, isn't it? It's interesting. So Jesus is saying little faith, it's basically worthless. And yet little faith can move mountains. This, the, the faith of a mustard seed. What does it mean? Well, it's, to me, it's all about the object, right? It's not about the size, it's the object. Here's what Pastor Tim Keller says. He puts it, I think, in a really clear way. The faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. Imagine you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you, as you fall, you see a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It, it's your only hope. And it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? Because it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith, listen, in a weak branch is fatally insuperior to weak faith in a strong branch. I'll read, to you, read, read that last part one more time. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's the object of our faith that matters. Right? That's, that's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus says here in verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Uh, he goes on in verses 30 and 31 to say, Jesus did many other signs, and they're written so that we might believe that he is who he said he was, believing in his name. We're going to get to that passage next week. Uh, I'm not going to be here. Somebody else will be teaching that passage next week, so I don't want to steal their thunder, but... John is writing to an audience that was never going to talk with Jesus, never going to walk with Jesus, never going to see the things that Thomas saw. And so he's saying, blessed is he who is not seen and yet believed. Why? Because some of us do not have the luxury of being eyewitnesses. No, we believe in a Jesus who walked 2,000 years ago. We're far removed from eyewitness accounts. And I think John shows us this story about Thomas to encourage us who are going to live so much later concerning the things of Jesus. He writes to persuade us about who Jesus is. We can't reach out and touch him. We can't speak with him. And yet we have a genuine opportunity to believe without seeing. And we can do that. Why? Because we have strong faith? No, but because we have a strong God, because we have Jesus, because he's our savior. He's the object of our faith. See, we can't prove that Jesus existed. It takes faith. We can't prove the existence of God. No, we look at the evidence. We see the proofs, but we can't prove it. It takes faith. And it's the end of the day. It's not our faith we're clinging to. It's Jesus. I love what John wrote in John 17, 3, just a couple of chapters earlier. He says, this is eternal life that you know Jesus. That's eternal life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
It doesn't say by faith you have been saved. It says by grace you have been saved. By Jesus you have been saved. So faith is the conduit, but faith is not the thing that saves us. It's Jesus who saves us. It's not our faith that matters most, right? It's the object of it. And so my question for us is, what are you building your faith on? What are you building your hope on? We're all building our lives on something. What are you building yours on? Is it, is it our ability to intellectually understand all the evidence? Is it our ability to make sense of everything coming? Or is it Jesus? At the end of the day, every foundation we build our lives on besides Jesus is, is shifting sand, isn't it? Jesus is the only foundation that can sustain human hope, that can sustain human faith. Every other branch that we would reach out and cling to will give way. Every other foundation will fail. It's not the object of our faith. It is the object of our faith, rather, not the strength of our faith that matters. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the story of Thomas. Lord, I thank you for for his doubt, because in his doubt, we see hope for ourselves. God, he was just a person trying to make sense of his life. And God, I think we're the same. We're trying to make sense of life, trying to make sense of faith, trying to make sense of you in our own families, in our own communities. So Lord, I pray you'd encourage us today that it's really the object of our faith that matters. Lord, I pray we'd reach up and all collectively grab hold of Jesus. Who alone is worthy? We pray this in his name.